Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today, Rena Van Alst from Strata Central. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. How are you today? Yeah, pretty good for a Friday. <laughs> ah, Friday for us it is indeed. Ready to jump into our Strata wins and challenges for the week. Let's kick off with your challenge, Rena. So this is probably one that perhaps many large buildings that might have income coming from non-owners, which is referred to as non-mutual income, could be a renting out common property, it could be a tower remuneration through a lease with Telstra, Optus or any the other telecommunication providers. And rather than being tax demanded by the Owners Corporation at that level where you pay tax like you would um, by anyone receiving income, due to a tax ruling TR215-3, that income is taxed in the hands of the recipient. So basically we have to advise all our lot owners that their portion of the income, which is in accordance with the unit entitlement, their share, is then declared on their individual tax returns. Hmm. And unfortunately, we've had a few people that have been quite upset by that and they've rung us and they've said, well, I'm not declaring this income. I didn't receive it. Hmm. You know, why are you sending me this letter, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, I think it is a very unusual thing to understand where you don't physically receive the money in your hand, but it's actually being received in the hands of the owners corporation that you need to pay tax on that. This probably wouldn't happen in perhaps too many buildings, I think, but in probably the inner city areas, large schemes where they do have the ability to perhaps rent out some common property to a telecommunications tower company or um, perhaps they've got an apartment. I mean, we've got buildings that actually have an apartment that's common property, which they rent out. So, I'm not sure, Amanda, have you had come across any owners coming to you and complaining about this particular issue? No, I haven't. And I find it fascinating. So the money is still held in the owners corporation's account. It is yes. not actually distributed to owners, no. but they must still declare it as their own income. Exactly. Very interesting. Um, and you said it's a 2015 ruling. Yeah. And is this something that an accountant has alerted you to somewhere along yeah, the way. Yeah, well, I mean, for schemes that I've managed for many, many years, the accountant will always tell us that obviously we can't give tax advice because we don't have the qualifications, but the accountant will say, okay, Rena, this is the income that needs to be declared to all lot owners. Please prepare a letter and, and mm. issue with the, with the schedule of payments mm. that they've got to de- actually declare. Well, I hope everybody is aware of that, strata managers. Listen up and make sure that if your buildings are receiving this kind of income that you're getting proper advice from the scheme's accountant. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, um, I'm not really sure how the government would actually capture this, to be honest. I mean, if you don't declare it, then how would they even know? Because it's not like there's data matching, you know, like if you've got shares or interest in matter in a bank, then when you get your account, it's already got it all listed. So who knows more about what you've got? But in this case, I'm not really sure how that would be captured in terms of how the um, 
tax department would even know about this. But anyway. Yeah. Well, I suppose they would know where you live if it is your residential property that is in the strata mm. building and they would know what your investment is if it is an investment property because you'd be declaring that income. So it wouldn't be too hard to be able to weed out those who live in strata buildings and then to be able to match up what it is that the building is declaring as compared to what it is that you, the owners, are declaring. Yeah, I think it's possible. Um, yeah, I think obviously the, the telecommunications entity is paying the owners corporation so it's not paying individuals so I think it's just one of those things where I don't really know and I think it would only apply I think to you know obviously larger schemes where there is a capacity to be able to um it could be even in small medium schemes perhaps where they are renting out common property Mm. uh, non-owners um then maybe there is that if they're renting out car spaces to third parties, for example, or yeah. yeah. And I suppose by the time it is distributed in accordance with unit entitlements, that figure that the owner is having to declare is probably, I mean, who knows what the situation is, but it's not a huge amount and shouldn't really affect their tax position at the end of the day, no. but it's just the the knowledge that you actually do need to disclose that because of this tax ruling. Yeah, I think and also, Amanda, the notion that you're paying tax on money you haven't physically received. <laughs> Yeah, if you are, if it changes your tax position, causes you to pay more tax, it probably doesn't in most circumstances. Yeah, exactly. All right. Thank you for that, Rena. I will look up that tax ruling and put a link to that one in the show notes. And if you've got any fact sheets or summaries about this, Rena, that maybe is the, the shortcut for our strata managers, if you could flick those to me and I will put a link to those in the show notes as well. Yeah, definitely, Amanda. Beautiful. Okay. My challenge for this week relates to fire safety statements. And I just wanted to put this out there to make sure that committees and strata managers are aware of this. We know we have to have our annual fire safety statement prepared. However, do you know that you must display that fire safety statement in a conspicuous position somewhere on the building? Now, that will usually be the notice board. But query this, what if a building does not have a notice board? Because Mm. you don't have to have a notice board. So, Rena, I'm not sure if this has come up in any buildings you manage, but uh, it came up recently with an owner that I'm working with and she said, I'm aware that we have to display this. It's in the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act, but we don't have a notice board. So am I just going to stick it on a wall somewhere? Mm. Well, what we do with our schemes, Amanda, is that we would tell them just to get a very small one and perhaps put it in a, in the basement or somewhere mm. that's conspicuous. But, um, yeah, it's not necessarily – it's usually a lockable one so that people then can't go adding other notices on the notice board. But, yeah, unfortunately, you have to have something to display that annual fire safety statement. So even mm. if you don't have a notice board per se for agendas and minutes or any other forms of communication, then you do have to have a notice board to actually um, display the annual fire safety statement. Yeah, probably a good idea to get a notice board, uh, even in our smallest buildings. I think they are put to good use, uh, particularly when it comes to this important certificate. Yeah, exactly. And showing that the building actually is compliant. And also, Amanda, you you need to serve a copy on the um, fire brigade as well. I'm not sure people are doing that. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's another requirement too. So when we issue them, we also issue a copy to the fire brigade. I think this is probably important for any of the self-managed schemes that perhaps Amanda are listening to the podcast mm-hmm. that don't have a manager. 
who can guide them in this area that there's a lot of compliance measures that perhaps they're not aware of. And, um, you know, these two that you've, you've mentioned, one that I've just now mentioned, are very important that the fire brigade is also aware of the fire safety measures and the AFSS. Yep, definitely. Good reminders there, not just for our self-managed, but for our strata managers as well, who might need to make sure that their committees are attending to this if they're flicking off the AFSS once it's complete to the chair, including a note that that must be displayed, is a good idea as well. Okay, win for this week, Rena. jump in. This is a very helpful one, I think, for lot owners who are experiencing building defects, Amanda, but these are lot owner losses and not ones that are associated with the common property. Mm. So we have a scheme where there's quite a number of defects and, and individual owners have been advised by our office to basically refer them to fair trading or they need to take their own action. So fair trading then rang us and said, well, we can't do this. We can't have every single owner just ring us individually. You need to do this. And mm. I said, well, unfortunately, as an agent, we are engaged by the Owners Corporation to look after the common property. We're not engaged to actually look after individual lots and their losses in this case or the defects within the lots, like, you know, for kitchen cupboards and things like that, Amanda, and, you know, other matters inside the lot that aren't actually common property. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, is that because you don't get paid to do it? I said, it's nothing, <laughs> nothing, to, getting, nothing to do with not getting paid. I said, it's irrelevant. I said, I don't have the authority nor the power under legislation to do it or our, you know, agency agreement, et cetera. So I spoke to our lawyer who's looking after the defects and he said to me that he will arrange someone in a separate sort of lawyer or and a person that can collate all the lot owner losses and perhaps then put in like a, a claim, not a class action, but a, a joint claim by all owners. So basically we wrote to all the owners, we gave them the details of that person and um, we've asked them to communicate with them directly. Sometimes people have forwarded to us, but we just then forward it back on to that person. And I think this is a great win for a building Amanda because individual people don't really know what to do, how to do it. And sometimes I think, well, you know, if I have to engage a lawyer and I've already like paying so much in levies to cover defects and having this idea I think where you can recommend somebody else that can then collate this in a very cost-efficient way and then help all those owners has really made a big difference. I mean people are really grateful Mm. um, that we've actually done this and I think for any managers out there perhaps or or schemes that are experiencing defects where there are a lot of individual defects that, you know, we can help them in in a way by having somebody else that we can direct them to and assist them in that way. And I think that makes such a big difference, I think, for people who, you know, are quite stressed already about, you know, buying a new apartment and then having to deal with all these defects. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're working with important timeframes in place Mm. and making sure that those are met and that all claims are in within the time that they need to be and if you've got litigation on foot then making sure you're complying with whatever the tribunal might tell you to then it can indeed become very stressful and having that person there to help is an excellent idea I love it Thanks, Amanda. There is a section in our legislation in New South Wales, Section 254, which says that owners' corporations may represent owners in certain proceedings, but that section is very clear that it only applies in proceedings in relation to common property. Exactly. Yeah. So you're right. Where we have lot property defects and problems within the lot, uh, owners do have a right to pursue those, but not uh, in the name of the owners' corporation. 
Yeah, and without and not with the assistance of the strata manager. Yeah, indeed. Well, the win that I wanted to share this week relates to converting a company title building to a strata scheme. Now, we've been doing this for a few years now, Rena, and I don't think we have talked about conversion. No, we haven't actually. We might have talked a little bit about company title, but not this conversion process. I am currently helping owners in what is a two-lot company title building to go through this conversion process. And it's a process that was instigated by their neighbour who has found out through the local council that it is uh, now possible with council's planning controls to convert to strata and their neighbour has decided it'd be a good idea, it would increase the value of their properties. And very astutely, I think, uh, these owners came to me and said, look, we don't know what this means. We don't know what this is all about. We don't understand this process. Can you please explain it to us and let us know if there's anything that we need to be on top of? And I say that they were quite astute because as part of converting from a company title scheme to a strata title scheme, you are doing things like proposing your bylaws. And where somebody who may be looking to sell very quickly, they're going through the conversion, they've increased the value of their property perhaps, and they're going to put it on the market, they don't really care what the bylaws are going to say. But somebody (laughs) like my clients who are planning to be there for many, many more years, they've got a family, they're happy where they are, they are concerned to deal with things like, well, can we keep animals? Uh, We have a dog currently and we want to make sure that the bylaws are very clear that we're allowed to keep that dog. We also have some garden beds out the front and we usually maintain those but we want to make clear in the bylaws that this is a shared garden and that the other owner should be contributing to that maintenance and perhaps even more detailed and Rena you and I talked about this back in episode 147 about two lot schemes making bylaws that help them to get along. (laughs) They're actually thinking, uh, my current client is thinking about developing bylaws that make clear each owner in this new strata scheme is responsible for their own walls, windows, that part of the roof that is above their lot, their own waterproofing within their bathroom because they are concerned to avoid all of those disputes that we see in two lot schemes and that I think we were talking about in episode 147 where somebody wants things done to their side of the property that the other doesn't agree with, the other doesn't want to pay for, for example, Mm. or contribute to, where you're essentially living with only one common wall being your dividing wall. I don't think it's a bad idea to have each owner take on responsibility for that part of the structure that is on their side. And if you don't have a bylaw that says that, then the strata law does not help you in that respect. It does say that the common property will be anything past the upper surface or the inner surface of the wall and the owner's corporation will be responsible for dealing with the common property, your walls, your windows, your roof. I don't see why if you have the opportunity on registration of the strata plan to develop those kinds of bylaws that are going to help you live perhaps more peacefully down the track. You never know what neighbour you're going to get. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a good idea. I think it's a wonderful idea, Amanda. I think especially in a two-lot scheme where, um, you know, they usually are prevalent with litigation and and disputes because the costs are only shared between two people and if someone's not directly benefiting from, from a repair 
or a replacement of, of con property, then they're, they're less likely to want to perhaps um, contribute. The only thing I would probably add in that case in, that you're proposing is perhaps to have like an architectural code because when people are responsible to do their own thing, you don't want to have, to have a mishmash mm. of appearance. So if, if windows, like if you have windows that are a certain style, then you can't have someone trying to replace them later on, perhaps who's an investor who doesn't want to spend a lot of money, having a cheap one that doesn't even match the other side and perhaps yep. having an architectural code so that, you know, the gardens are maintained and, you know, to a certain standard and, and style. So I think that when you don't have that, then I think the value will will diminish if the building is not maintained in a, in a holistic way, mm. architecturally at least. So I like that. Thank you very much for that tip. I'll definitely add that to the list. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, that's great, Amanda. I think that you've been able to achieve that. That's a wonderful thing. I think that would stop so many disputes. I think, I think I'm sure that Fair Trading and NCAT will be happy with that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Reduce their, their workload. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you are uh, interested in finding out more about the conversion process or if you're in a company title scheme and you're interested in looking at whether you can convert to strata title, I always say the best place to start is with your local council because they are the ones who do need to approve that change. And depending on where you are, the size of your building, things like that, the council may or may not support the conversion to strata. So once you've got that in principle support, then you can go ahead and make your further investigations about what's involved. It's generally a lot of paperwork and -hmm. depending on the size of your building, lots of forms to fill out. Of course, you need to involve a surveyor to draw a strata plan. You need a valuer to do your schedule of unit entitlements. Uh, You need to have all of your mortgagees, all your your banks that hold the mortgages to be involved and to consent. So it's really a, a process with a long checklist and certainly get lawyers involved who are familiar with that process to hold your hand along the way. Amanda, can I ask you one question about this conversion process? Uh, many years ago, I was involved in one. And the problem that we had was that the um, we needed to show that stamp duty had been paid on the, sh- the transfer of shares from the old owner to the new owner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you actually have that problem? That you had to show that stamp duty had been paid on, evidence of stamp duty paid on the purchase of the shares? We're not there yet, uh, but I have done a couple of conversions before and I don't recall that being an issue. So yeah. um, I'll come back to you on that and see if it yeah. comes up. Mm, interesting. Government doesn't want to miss out on its tax, eh? Hey? Well, I think for a lot of these company title buildings, sometimes the amount of people bought, you know, the shares 30 years ago and the conveyancing file has been thrown away. So there's no evidence. Oh, yeah. yeah. The ASIC has a record that you're actually the owner of the shares, but apart from that, there's no evidence of paying stamp duty. So, mm. yeah. I'll let you know how that one plays out. Yeah. All right. I think that's it for this week, Rena. Anything to add? No. All good, Amanda. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Will do. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today?